If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to John chapter 6. We will begin in verse 66. Hear now the word of the Lord. After this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this glorious passage that we have been working through. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the provision of the bread of life. Thank you for giving us the grace to partake. Lord, I pray that as we conclude this chapter now that you would come and show us Christ. Lord, that we would see his glory once again. That you would show your son to be that which is most desirable. And that our hearts would have affection for him as he deserves. So Father, come. We ask that you would be worshipped in this place. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It is good to be back with you again. Happy Father's Day, brothers, those of you who are fathers. Tell you what, one of the things I'm very thankful for in the life of this congregation is the seriousness with which many of the fathers in this room take their role. Uh, I believe wholeheartedly that one of the leading contributors to the current state of our country and the moral decline that is accelerating more and more with every passing year is actually due to the passivity of men in our culture, and the fatherlessness that plagues this generation. God has designed the role of the father to be indispensable. Certainly there is grace in certain situations, but children need leadership and direction, and that comes from fathers. So when I see many of the fathers in this room approach their calling with soberness and with intentionality, it gives me hope for the generation that is to come being raised in in this church. Men, those of you who take your charge seriously, keep at it. Keep raising your children with intentionality. It's part of what it means to be a man. And to do it under the Lord is to be a man of God. This is raise your children for His glory. That is to be your aim, to raise your children for the glory of God. Well, with that being said, today we have come to the last few verses in John chapter 6. And in the Lord's providence, we're also scheduled to partake of the Lord's Supper, which I believe is a fitting way to finish up this chapter on the bread of life. We have spent eight weeks here meditating on this discourse as Christ has unfolded His own glory, He's taught on God's sovereignty, and He's revealed the true nature of the masses, of this crowd that was following Him. Those who appeared to be His disciples were shown to be what they really were, which was deniers of the Son of God. They were actually false disciples. The truth is, this problem still abounds in our day. In fact, I I do not think it to be wrong nor an exaggeration to say that the vast majority of those who call themselves a Christian of any stripe in this day, in our time, are actually self-deceived and lost. Remember, Jesus said it would be so. The gate is narrow and the way that leads to, to life is narrow and few there be who find it. 
The context of that statement in Matthew chapter 7 is actually talking about religious people. It's not a contrast between atheists and believers. This is why Jesus went on to say, Many who call him Lord, many will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He told us that false disciples would abound. In fact, let me give you some evidence for that in our day. Every other year, Ligonier Ministries conducts a survey to try to get a theological beat on our times. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. I have referenced it a few times. They call it the state of theology. And in this survey, they ask different demographics questions pertaining to to ethics and to theology and to beliefs about the Bible to try to get a feel for where people are at. Now, last year, in 2022, that was the last time they ran the survey, and among Protestant evangelicals, so we're not talking about Catholics, we're not talking about Eastern Orthodox or anything of that sort, we're talking about Protestant evangelicals. They asked this, agree or disagree? Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. That's almost half, just right out of the gate, who have denied the deity of Christ. Another question they asked, agree or disagree? God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of Protestant evangelicals agreed with that statement. Over half saying Christ is not even necessary to worship God. And that's just, a, that's just a couple of the questions that they ask. Those are, those are tragic results. The truth is, false disciples abound. They're everywhere. So then if that is true, the question then is, what are the distinguishing marks between a true follower of Christ and a, and a false one? How do, we, how do we tell the difference? Well, that is what we're going to see in this passage today. As we look at this final scene here in John chapter 6, we're going to see three parts to this interaction between Jesus and his remaining disciples. The test, a response, and the warning. And my hope for us all as we as we look at this is that we will see with clarity and with soberness the difference between the character of a true disciple and that of a false one. And in recognizing that, that we will have the categories needed to assess even our own hearts. This isn't, this isn't so you can be assessing everyone else's heart around you. This is so you can assess your own heart to see if there's truly any competing desires for Christ in there. Ultimately, I'm hoping that when you look around the options of this world, that you would see that there truly is nothing that compares to Christ. That we would respond with Peter, with the disciples here, and say, where else, where else can we go? Because the true disciple knows that there is nothing out there except Christ. It is Christ alone. So let's look at this. Let's, let's start here with this, this test that Jesus issues to his remaining disciples. Look at verse 67. So Jesus says to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Now as we think about the significance of this question that Jesus has just put to his disciples, we need to remember the intensity of the moment in which it was asked. This is actually one of the most intense moments of the entire ministry of Christ. And no doubt, it was, a, it was a key moment for these disciples. Because remember, even though we haven't heard anything about them uh, since, since the night that Christ walked on the water, these guys have been there the entire time as passive observers to this whole interchange on the second day. Now, on the first day, they were, they were very much involved. And Jesus had begun this whole thing by actually testing his disciples to see if they would look to their own resources and their own understanding or if they would look to him and to God's provision. Remember, when the massive crowd showed up on the other side of the lake, Jesus said to Philip back in verse 5, Where are we to buy bread 
so that these people may eat. And then John notated in, in verse 6, Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. You see, Jesus was always teaching these guys. In fact, much of what we read about in these stories in the Gospels was for the sake of the twelve. Whether they realized it or not, Jesus was preparing these men to become his apostles. All of them, except one, would be the original authorized messengers of Jesus Christ, entrusted with his teaching, entrusted with the gospel. The gospel went forth to the world because of these men. As the book of Ephesians tells us, the church was, was built and is continuing to be built upon the foundations of the prophet and the apostles, with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. You know, when the church was founded in the, in the book of Acts, it was so by the preaching of the apostles. And as we read about all of those new disciples, those new converts joining the church, they were giving themselves to apostolic teaching, which is, of course, what we are continuing to do today. And the very book that we're working through, the Gospel of John, is apostolic teaching written by the Apostle John. In fact, every book in the New Testament is written either by an apostle or an apostle's associate, one under an apostle. It is all apostolic teaching. So it would be hard to exaggerate the significance of the role that these guys would play, which is why it's, it's amazing to see just how normal they were and often how dense they were. Now, these, these were not elites here at all. These were regular Joes many of them just fishermen. And Jesus is constantly discipling them and preparing them. It's for that reason that I, I actually believe much of the purpose of this entire chapter, this entire discourse to the masses, was not primarily for the crowd, but it was for them. It was for the twelve. And subsequently for all the Christians who would now hear about it through them. Christ was teaching them. And he was actually still testing them. Now, these guys utterly blew it on the first test. They were only looking to the size of the crowd and to the insufficiency of their own resources. And they did not see Jesus as the provision standing right before him. So Jesus brought them in on his miraculous provisions, and they, they served the massive crowd. They were very involved. They distributed miraculous bread. And no doubt, through this, their faith grew. They once again saw his power and they participated in it. And for, for them, it was, all, it was all very exciting. Miracles were happening and they're watching as their master's influence and popularity was growing. And then overnight, when they were rowing back in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the lake, Jesus again reveals more of who he was, more of himself as the great I am comes walking to them on the water. But now, after they've returned to Capernaum, this massive crowd once again finds Christ, the whole time they've just been watching and listening as this interchange has unfolded. And no doubt it was to their surprise when Jesus began this thing by rebuking the crowd for following him because their motives were set only on that which was temporary. The crowd wanted more food not Christ. They did not truly see who he was, nor did they care for the eternal provisions that he came to provide. So the twelve are just listening in as Jesus tells this crowd exactly who he is as the bread of life come down from heaven. And they're all watching this thing as it gets more and more intense. And remember, these are their own people. These were Galileans, as were all of the disciples except for one. These were people that the disciples loved and cared for. And it may well be, and it is very likely, that there were many in the crowd that they knew well and loved. But they're watching as the intensity of this thing is rising with every word that passes out of the mouth of Christ. As he, as he declares himself to be the Son of Man sent from heaven, 
that must be believed upon, as he tells them that none of them can come to him unless the Father draws him, as he declares himself to be the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, as he claims to have the power to raise people up on the last day, and as then he declares to them that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood if they want eternal life. All of this is going on, and they are just watching as their own people are rapidly changing from zealous followers to bitter antagonists. The Galileans are now offended with Christ. Even those who considered themselves His disciples. And the twelve watch as, as Christ, rather than seeking to ease their offense, drives the final nail when He essentially says, if you're offended with this, wait until you see Me return in glory to My Father which we know would take him through the cross. The disciples watched as Jesus became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to their own people. For the twelve, this whole thing started with excitement and a zealous crowd seeking to make their master king. But now it ends with them standing and watching what happens in verse 66. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus was forsaken by his own people. They left him. To no longer walk with him in Jewish culture means to forsake him as their teacher, to reject his teaching, to cut him off from their life. They were done. They turned back. It was over. There was, there was finality here. And the twelve are just watching as this unfolds. And it is at this moment, having just heard the same offensive teaching, Jesus telling everyone that they must eat His flesh and drink His blood, and watching them walk away as a result, that Jesus now turns to these men and says, Do you want to go away as well? This was an intense question at an intense moment. Now, for clarity, Jesus' reason for asking this question was not for His benefit. It was not because He was trying to ascertain information that He did not already know. In fact, John already made it clear that we, that which we as readers would understand was back in verse 64. Look what He says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. See, even though Jesus was, was grieved by the hardness of heart displayed by the crowd, he was not at all surprised by it. Nor was he actually concerned that the twelve would follow suit. Now, he was not asking them for his benefit, but for theirs. You see, up to this point, these guys have had it pretty easy. They're watching Christ perform wondrous things. They're hearing Christ teach wondrous things. And the masses had been flocking to him. Sure, they'd, they'd face some resistance from the Jewish leadership, but the people were eating it up. And the twelve had the envious position of being the closest ones to the one that everyone was after. But now the masses have turned their back and left. And these guys are standing here with just themselves and Jesus. And they're faced with a dilemma. Will you follow me when no one else will? See, the hype is gone. The excitement is over. Do you really believe? Are you really following? Or have you just been caught up in the excitement of everything? In the spiritual high of everything that's been going on? And make no mistake about it, this is one of the preeminent tests of true discipleship. Not, not just for these guys, but for everyone. In fact, some of Jesus' hardest words about true discipleship and following Him were around this issue. That following Him will likely mean loss of relationships. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told His disciples this in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father. Happy Father's Day. 
and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Truth is, one's relationship, relationship with Christ cannot be true if it is contingent upon the relationships around them. No matter who it is, no matter how close they are to you, Christ must be preeminent. And those who have seen the glory of Christ will follow Christ even if all of their loved ones turn on them and become their very enemies. Even if no one else is following, the true disciple will follow. Even if that means loss of reputation, loss of status, loss of career, loss of loved ones. Following Christ can and often has meant walking a lonely road. And it can and often lead to loss in this life rather than gain. And these disciples are here being put to this test. Not to prove themselves to Christ, but for the sake of their own hearts. So that they actually have to make a decision and wrestle with what is more important. Their own people who just walked away? Or Christ? And Jesus knows. He knows where they are. But He knows that they need to hear themselves come to the right conclusion and confess the truth in this moment. And that's why Peter's answer, which is on behalf of the group, is so beautiful. Because it does reveal, show forth the heart of a true believer, a true disciple. Look at what he says. Let's look now at the response. Look at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Those are the words of a true disciple. And he is speaking on behalf of the group. He Notice the plural. He says, he says, we. Where else shall we go? Now, there's three things in his response that I want us to consider. And I want us to consider them in contrast to those who just walked away. First is what Peter and the remaining disciples were, were after, what they desired. He says, you have the words of eternal life. In contrast to this, the, the crowds really only were interested in Christ for what he could provide for them temporally, for what they, he could do for their lives now. They wanted, they wanted bread. They wanted their, their bellies full. Their concern for their for, for them was their needs in this life. And their needs in this life superseded any concern about the needs of the next life. And just like Esau, they were willing to trade their birthright for a bowl of soup. And truly, they are an illustration of the corruption of the human heart. Don't think that we're any different. I mean, just think about our culture. We, li- we live in a culture that is obsessed with stuff. We live in a culture that that lives for pleasure. We live in a culture that is driven by and seeking after money. We live in a culture that encourages us to live our entire lives in anticipation of and for the day when we can stop working and relax. Call it retirement. We live in a culture that's obsessed with the here and now. And people are deceived by it. Listen, it matters not how much money you make, how quickly you get to retire, or how much stuff you accumulate. You are still dying. You are in this very moment a dying person. You're dying a slow death right now. And some of you will die faster than others. And eternity will be upon us all faster than any one of us can imagine. 
To live for this world is like trading your birthright for a bowl of soup. You would trade an eternal inheritance to have your temporary appetites fulfilled. Now that is not to say that we are not to work hard for our provisions in this world. God has given us the ability to work and to provide and to produce and to enjoy this world in which He's given us. He has. But it is not what we live for. And that is the difference. It's not what drives us. It's not what gives us life. As Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then he goes on to say, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, or the body more than clothing? But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. See, we're to be a people who live for the kingdom, who seek after eternity. We seek eternal life. We live for that. As Jesus already told the crowds back in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. That's what we're to be after. Eternal life. But to fully even understand that, it's important to keep in mind how the Gospel of John and how Christ define eternal life. We've, we've seen this before, but eternal life is not merely eternal existence. It's not about the duration of life. It is, it is rather about the type or quality of life. Eternal life, according to the Gospel of John, is life that is in union with the eternal God. A life that is defined by the presence of God rather than the corruption of sin. As Jesus said, a reference we'll keep coming back to in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is life in God. It is, it is knowing God. It's not just eternal bliss and immortality and all your desires and all that. It is that, but only because of our union with God. It is in Him and truly knowing Him that we experience those things. If, you're, if your conception of and your desire for heaven does not have knowing and seeing God at the very center of it, then your desire is pagan to the core. A godless heaven is actually hell. Heaven is heaven because God is there. Eternal life is knowing Him. And if He is not your desire, then you do not truly desire eternal life. That's what we're to be after. And that's what Peter and the disciples are after. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But notice, notice what he said. He said, it's the words of eternal life. That's the second thing I want you to take note of here. It's not that just that Peter and the disciples just recognize Christ to be the source of eternal life, which he is, but it is they recognize that he has the words of eternal life. That is, they recognize the absolute authority and absolute truth of everything that proceeds from the mouth of Christ. Peter's actually affirming what Christ already said back in verse 63. Christ said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, meaning they are of the spirit. They come from God with absolute authority, and they are life-giving to anyone who will receive them. Life is found in the very words of Christ, the truth of His word, the promises of His word. And those who are true disciples cling to it. This is why later in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to say to some Jews who are said to believe in Him. These are believing Jews who come to Him in chapter 8. And He says to them, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. That is, if you trust in 
believe in, cling to, and remain in what He has spoken. The gospel that He has proclaimed. You are His disciples. And those words that come from His mouth, they are the words of eternal life. But contrary to the Jews in chapter 8, the Jews here in chapter 6 did the very opposite. They proved themselves not to be His disciples by not abiding in His Word. In fact, they even verbally confessed that themselves. Back in verse 60, after hearing the words of Christ, it says this, When many of His disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? When it says saying there, the word that's behind that is the Greek word logos, which means word, message, saying. They were offended at his word. This is a hard word. Who can receive it? Who can listen to this? And then they walked away because they could not abide in it. They liked what he taught so long as it was convenient for them, so long as it didn't confront them. But as soon as he said something they didn't like, they were gone. They did not abide in Christ because they did not abide in his word. You see, the fact is you cannot piecemeal Christ from his word, from his commands, from his teaching. The whole idea that you can have Christ as your Savior but not as your Lord is utter nonsense. Don't listen to that. In fact, the, the, the great Christian confession, the confession of the church, the confession of the redeemed is Christ is Lord. That's over and over in the New Testament. Philippians 2, Romans 10, 1 Corinthians 12. It's everywhere. Christ is Lord. And the truth is you cannot claim Christ as your Lord if you do not submit to Him as your Lord. If you do not submit to and abide in His Word. You can't claim to be a disciple of Christ if you reject the teaching of Christ. I mean, that's even part of the Great Commission, is it not? This is part of what it means to be a disciple. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Does it stop there? No. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. All of it. The heart of a true disciple is to recognize and to submit to the truthfulness and the power of his words. No matter how difficult they may be, he has the words of eternal life. He speaks nothing but the truth. He speaks nothing but life. No matter how hard His words may be at times in your life, they are life. And we are to see them as such. We are to abide in them. Even when we don't understand them. Even when they confront us. Even when they correct us. Even when we think they are hard, we are to abide no matter how hard His words may be at times, they are life. We are to see them as such. In fact, we are to tremble at His Word. We are, we are to tremble at the very idea of not receiving what Christ has said, of not abiding at what Christ has said. Just as God said in Isaiah 66, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You ought to tremble at his word. You ought to be a person who trembles at the very idea of living contrary to it. But all of this stems from understanding who Christ is. And that's exactly what Peter grounds this in. This is the third thing I want you to see here from his confession. Look at what he said. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, the reason that Peter and the disciples recognize the authority and life of his words is because they understand the identity of his person. This is a direct recognition of who Christ is. That it, 
as, as Christ has said many times, even in this discourse, that he is the one who has come down from heaven. You see, this is where Christianity begins, and this is where it ends, with seeing Christ. As we, we've talked about many times, to be born again is to have your eyes opened by God to the glory of who Christ is and to cling to him. It is to see and understand that he is not just a good teacher or a prophet or a miracle worker or anything else like that. He is not a mere man. Rather, it is to see what, what Paul sees in Colossians chapter 1 when he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is God in the flesh. And the beautiful reality of that is the reality that has been awakened in Peter and these disciples, and it's being developed in them more and more as they walk with Christ. But in contrast, the, the, the crowd, the masses, had walked away because they rejected who Christ truly is. They were happy to have Christ is someone who just fit their desires. But as soon as Christ spoke clearly about his divine origins and his divine prerogatives, they walk away. They no longer walk with him. Jesus told them that he was the son of God come from heaven, but they could only see him as the son of Joseph come from Nazareth. They walk away. But what they did not realize is when they walked away from him, they were not just walking away from a man or a prophet. They were walking away from God. And they were walking away from their heritage as God's people. Their Jewish lineage would earn them no favors with the Father apart from Christ. As John said in 1 John 2, No one who denies the, the Son has the Father. This is why it's important to recognize that God does not accept the worship of Islam or Judaism or any other religion that denies Christ. God has done things in such a way where access to Him is decidedly Christ-centered and Christ-contingent. To reject Christ is to reject the Father. To have Christ, though, is to have the Father. But all of that being said, as we will see, this is about more than just a, a, a mere acknowledgement of the truth. This is about trust and hope in the truth. Interestingly enough, Peter has used a, a very unique construction here in his confession of Christ. He, he calls him the Holy One of God. There's only one other place in Scripture that we see this epithet used for Christ. And it's actually in the book of Mark. And do you know who said it? It was a demon. The demons knew who he was. And James says they even tremble. So true discipleship is about more than mere intellectual acknowledgement of the truth. You can recognize all of that and not truly be trusting in it. Which is why I believe that Jesus leaves them with these last words. Let's look now at this warning that he leaves them. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, no question, this is an odd and unexpected response from Christ. After what Peter just said, one may have expected a similar response to Peter's great confession in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. But he doesn't say that here. Rather, he asserts his sovereignty, and then he issues this rather ominous warning. The question is, 
Why? Well, to answer that, first it's important to remember how Jesus' ministry began in this gospel. And it actually did not begin with Jesus going around and handpicking, hand-choosing His disciples. On the contrary, in chapter 1, it began with the disciples seeking Him out, choosing Him. And they know that. So when Jesus speaks of choosing them here, He's speaking more cosmically of His sovereign selection of them as God. They came to Him for a reason. He's not speaking about some some mere historical events, but what God has done in His sovereignty. And He's doing that to remind them of why they see and believe and know what they know. Yes, the confession voiced by Peter was dead on. But they need to remember that they didn't come up with that on their own. Christ is applying the words of His own discourse here. They have come to know what they know because they have been chosen, drawn, and taught by God. And what He's doing is He's guarding them from pride. They are not remaining with Him because they are better than those who departed. They are remaining with Him because of grace. And because of grace alone. So as they look at this defecting crowd, they ought not to say, what is wrong with these people? Rather, if they understand what Christ is telling them, they can only say, if not for the grace of God, there go I. The same is true today. The same is true of us. Do not be prideful about what you know or your status before God. If you believe, the only reason you believe and the only reason you do not make shipwreck of your faith right now is grace. It is God's kindness and mercy towards you, sustaining you. And it was so towards them as well. And Jesus reminds them of that. I chose you. But what was no doubt even more sobering to these disciples was Jesus' last statement. And yet one of you is a devil. It's actually more direct than that. This is a technical term in the way that it's constructed. And every time it's used like this in the Scripture, it always means the devil. One of you is the devil. Now by that, he doesn't mean that Judas is Satan himself, but that he's directly operating as Satan's agent. But notice that Jesus does not tell them who it is. Now, now John tells us, as, as the readers, we know what's going on in hindsight. We know what's coming. Judas is going to betray Christ, but the disciples did not know. And what's amazing, as you work through the Gospels, you will see that no one ever expected Judas It wasn't as if they were thinking, yeah, we we know. No surprise there. It's an obvious one, Jesus. No, nobody expected Judas. By all outward appearances, Judas was a bona fide follower of Christ. And he was a part of everything. He, He preached the gospel. He even cast out demons. He was not exempt or sidelined from any of the ministry activity that Christ assigned to the twelve. He was a part of all of it. See, the fact is, Judas knew the truth. He could articulate the truth. He even proclaimed the truth. But Judas didn't love the truth. Judas wasn't trusting in, hoping in the truth. His problem was that he loved this world rather than Christ. He was a lover of money. He was a thief. He was an idolater. He would rather have the pleasure of that which is temporal than that which is eternal. And the desire for worldly gain would eventually overtake him to the point that he was willing to sacrifice the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. That is the power of and deceitfulness of sin. 
Church, this is why Scripture warns us in Hebrews 3 not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, leading you to fall away from the living God. Or in Hebrews 13, it says to keep yourself free from the love of money. Or as John the Apostle put it in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The question is, what do you love? You can know the truth, but not love the truth. You can affirm the truth, but not love the truth. You can come in here and nod your head and sing the truth every Sunday, but then go out there and live for this world because that's what you really love and that's what you really care about. That was Judas's story. And Judas is not the only one who went that direction. The church has always been riddled with such people. Even the Apostle Paul saw it with one of his own traveling companions. At the end of his life, in his last letter, Paul wrote of a, a traveling companion of his, a ministry worker named Demas, who had labored with him for gospel advancement. Paul had mentioned him in Philemon and in the book of Colossians, but at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy, Paul had to say this, Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. See, it's not just about what you know. It's not even about what you do. Religious activity does not help you. It is about what you are trusting in. It is about what you love. It is about what you rejoice in. It's about what you hope in. Do you rejoice in Christ and His provisions? Or is it this world and its provisions that truly makes you rejoice? See, Jesus knew where Judas' heart was. He knew what He was going to do. What's more is He even chose Him for it. You need to understand that even Judas's betrayal of the Son of God took place by the sovereignty of God. Now that does not mean that Judas was forced into his sin by God, not at all. He acted according to his own desires and in keeping with his own nature, but he did so in fulfillment of Scripture and under the sovereignty of God. In fact, in John 13, Jesus is going to quote Psalm 41 with reference to Judas, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Judas was the friend of Jesus who betrayed Jesus in fulfillment of the Scripture. The question is, why does Jesus share this with his disciples, and why doesn't he tell them who it is? I think two reasons. One is that they will not be surprised. That when it is all said and done, they will see that all of it was truly the working of God's sovereign plan. Judas's apostasy and his betrayal did not thwart God's plan at all, but on the contrary, it actually fulfilled it. And broader than just Judas, it is important to understand that God's purposes are never thwarted or hindered by apostates. Apostates have always been a part of the church, and they will always be. And the longer you're in the faith, the more you will see it. You should not be surprised by it. Sadly, I have already seen it many times with close personal friends. Some of them I went to seminary with and was preparing for ministry on the same track. Don't be surprised by it. And don't let it discourage your hearts towards Christ it says nothing about his power to save, and more than that, it says nothing about his power to keep. But it says everything about who they were all along. Christ is preparing his disciples for that, for the day that they lose their friend, Judas. But the second reason I think Jesus told them this was so that they would be 
vigilant to guard and assess their own hearts. He knew who it was. He didn't have to withhold that information, but he gave this vague warning for a reason, as a warning to all of them. This is why scriptures are riddled with warning passages for a reason, so that we take them seriously. The true believer is aware of the power of sin and is motivated by God's sovereign grace and forgiveness in their lives to fight sin and to guard their hearts and to heed those warning passages. The false believer presumes upon the grace of God and His forgiveness to justify their ongoing sin while ignoring the warnings. When the warnings are speaking about them, just like here, I guarantee 11 of these disciples took his warning seriously and one did not. Do not be deceived. As the great Spurgeon once said, Christ is either everything to you or he is nothing. Brothers and sisters, this whole chapter has been about the glory of Christ. He is the provision of God. He is the bread of life. Where else are you going to go? Can anything in this world compare with Him? Can anyone stand up to Christ? Is there anything more glorious than the Son of God? Can anyone offer you what Christ offers you? The forgiveness of your sins and eternal life in God. I hope when you consider any so-called alternatives that you would conclude with the 11 here and you would say, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. All I have and all I need is Christ, Christ alone. Church, let's pray. Oh, Father, where else can we go? It is your Son and your Son alone through whom we have eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for sending him. Thank you for giving your Son that we may know you, that we may have our sins washed, that we may be reconciled to you. God, keep us. By your grace, keep us. Help us to see the glory of Christ every day. Help us to wake up Christian tomorrow. Help us to cling to who you are. God, we need your mercy. We cannot do it in our own power. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.